When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, a very good morning. Another pretty morning out there. Not quite as cool as it was yesterday. And I have to say it feels a little bit more humid. But, hey, welcome to South Texas where the weather changes by the minute. That was so funny. Yesterday they were forecasting no rain for the coming week. By the end of the day, they had rain 50% chance last night, and I think 80% chance tomorrow and Tuesday. <laughs> if the weatherman can't get it right, you know, what are we mere mortals supposed to do except sit back and enjoy it and hopefully no more of the real rough stuff. Uh, a lot of us got hail last week and sure tore up some gardens that I've heard about. And uh, I think just about anybody had plants out, probably got a little bit of damage, but it was very isolated. If you're just under the wrong cloud, well, you picked up a little damage. If not, yeah, everything's just growing and looking beautiful this spring. But uh, if you have a question about what to do or just about anything else, that's what we're here to talk about for the next three hours. Now, don't dial right this second. Uh, Jim and Patrick and Jan and Diane all had <laughs> the number probably already in their phones. So all the lines are taken. But uh got so many things to talk about, but nothing more than important than what is on your mind. So, uh, Chris, let's just get started with phone calls, and Jim is up first. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. Morning, uh, sir. I'm the one with the ongoing armadillo problem. I've yes, sir. a large octagon flyer bed around an oak tree that they just love to get into. Um, my question to you is, if I run some hog wire around that, flyer bed, how high would that wire have to be before that varmint would be restricted? Well, they don't climb at all. If it's 12 inches high, they're not going to go over it. In fact, the way I trap them is by taking a 2x6, standing it up on edge, in fact, taking two of them and make kind of like a V funnel and set the trap down at the bottom of the V and the dumb things won't won't climb over the two by six. They just you know put their head down and walk along it until they walk into the trap. So, if you were to put your hog wire a foot tall, you know, um, they may try to dig under it, which is not uncommon. But they're not going to go over the top of it. Okay, well that's kind of what I thought. I that I didn't figure they could climb. I tell you what, though, I found they can run. I believe, I believe they outrun a dog. They run pretty quickly. And remember one of the funniest things I've ever seen, uh, my grandfather's little farm down in East Texas when I was growing up, one of them running along like mad and came up to a, a little shallow creek that was probably 18 inches deep. And it just it ran into the creek, ran down along the bottom of the creek, came up on the other side and kept on running. Now, I've seen them swim, but I've also seen them just act like, like a little, uh, you know, submarine <laughs> just running along the bottom under the water. So they are humorous, but that's all funny until they start tearing your garden up, and then it's not so much fun. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, that's that's kind of what I thought, but I thought I'd check with the expert on it. Always so. good to talk to you. 
You have a great Sunday. (laughs) Thank you, Jim. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. All right, that opens up one line, so grab it if you like, 210-599-5555. Patrick is next. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning. Uh, Morning, sir. I've got a report, and then I've got two questions. That giant hobby is a report uh, that I moved a week ago. It's still alive and well, and uh, it seems to be doing pretty good through the storms. Didn't blow over. (laughs) Very good. Uh, the first question I have is my June gold peaches, when we patched, when we planted them initially, when they were small, we put a fence around it to keep the deer away. Now yes, sir. that they're full grown and producing peaches, do I need to leave the fence up? Can I take it down? Well, deer are not as likely to, you know, eat on the trees once they're up to a good size. But the blasted bucks, you know, come in late summer on into the fall, rubbing their antlers both to mark their territory and to rub the velvet off. And we see even very large trees, you know, girdled by simply by the rubbing activity. Now, what I do in my own yard, and thank God I've got them fixed out of the garden but in the yard rather than leave you know in fact a cage around them i will just take two or three metal t-posts i just lean them up against the side of the tree you know, ring a baling wire around the top piece of baling wire around the bottom and they don't want to rub on wire they want to rub on something as soft as bark so i would take those cages away but if you have an issue with deer i'd sure think about uh and, and lots of times I just leave them up for three or four months and then take those T-posts away. But I sure would plan on protecting them because you've gone to a lot of work to get those trees up to that size. And uh, they can they can basically kill a tree by girdling it in one night. So uh, take away the cages, but put up a little less uh, obtrusive protection because uh, they, they're real bad about rubbing the bark off trees. All righty, and my wife's got a question about the peaches themselves. Okay. So we have two peach trees. One of them is uh, a little bit lighter green in color, and it produced very few peaches uh, compared uh-huh. to the one next to it. We fertilized the same and watered the same, so they're the same brand, so I wasn't sure about that. And the peaches themselves are very juicy and red and but they have, some of them have a tiny little black hole, and if you open mm-hmm. them, they'll have like a burrow down to the pit. Right, right. It's dark. Um, some of them have a dark spot where the stem connects to the peach. So I was sure. curious what kind of bug got into them and what I can do to prevent that in the future. Well, one... Uh uh, one one tree is obviously more stressed than the tree next to it. Quite often, we find that when uh, one of the trees is buried, when the you know there's dirt piled on the trunk up above the graft point. So the first thing I would do on both trees, but especially on the more stressed tree, you should see the big roots flaring out from the bottom. The graft point is probably going to be four to six inches above the ground, and that is normal and just fine. But the most common reason we see stress is from that trunk being buried too deeply. Second thing that can contribute is even within a relatively short space, your soil quality can change. Throughout our area, we've got domes of caliche come up closer to the surface, and three feet away, the soil is much deeper. So I would probably, the tree that's not doing as well, 
I'd probably double up on the fertilizer. I'd make certain that I had a good layer of mulch, not all the way up against the trunk, but out over the root zone. That cools the soil. That suppresses weeds. That does an awful lot to help the trees. Now, the little um, hole dug down in there is from a little... Oh, a little moth that lays an egg on the peach hatches into a little worm that burrows into the peach, and you can cut around it, but it's not much fun <laughs> eating a peach <laughs> that has a worm inside of it. But I, in my garden, I find that if I take the stress away uh, by exposing the root flares, by being sure they all get well watered and fertilized and mulched, then I have very few of the peaches that will wind up with worms in them. That, once again, the insects have a way of sensing a tree that's in stress. It has something to do with an actual resonance that they give off, and uh, they will always head for the stress tree before they get on anything else. So you, you simply got one tree a little more stressed than the other. The challenge is going to be figure out why it's stressed, and like I say, probably eight times out of ten, I find it's because the trunk's buried. Okay, I appreciate the information. Thank you Get so back much. to me and let me know what you find. All right, thank you. You're certainly welcome. Thank you. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Jan and Diane and Dave and Angie, and Jan is up first. Good morning. Good morning. I'm calling about a canna that um, has bloomed, and I'm wondering, do I cut that little stalk out now or just leave it? Well, it that's a good question. Um, I would probably suggest that you cut it off above the top leaf. You know how they put on usually two or three leaves kind of in a stalk, and then the bloom comes out above that. You want to leave the leaves because that's what keeps the plant strong. That's what's going to get it putting up another set of leaves and another set of blooms. But if you don't cut that old bloom spike off, many times it'll actually form some seed pods. That doesn't hurt anything, but it takes away strength that the plant could be putting into making more flowers for you. So I think it's worthwhile if you have the time just to get out there with some sharp pruning shears and certainly don't cut it back to the ground, but just cut it down below where the blooms were but above where the last leaf was. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Yeah, that's what I would do. It's about my grass. I think I'm fortunate to have two different things going on. (laughs) Okay. One, I have two big brown spots and one I could lift the grass and no roots so that should be the grubs right correct the other spot which was bigger than that one I I can pull on it and I get no roots so I I mean I get it stays it doesn't come up uh-huh. I guess that's a, a fungus or something it could be brown patch fungus. Normally, if it's uh, a fungus, normally the leaves will pull away from the runners easily. Um, I find a lot of times, though, it's a problem with, uh, you know, with the watering. Do you have a sprinkler system, or do you water with the sprinkler under the hose? How do you water? Well, we do have a sprinkler system, but we don't run it very often, and especially uh-huh. lately because of the um, the rains we've had. Um, <laughs> right. We finally had so some good rains. We put compost on it. We put compost mm-hmm. on both both the sites, and the one that that the roots weren't there, it spread pretty well. But the other one doesn't seem to have hardly any runners in the middle to to spread if we just um, treated it with a uh, you know the right. compost. 
Right. I, what I would, what I, what I would think about doing, Jan, first of all, is take some little straight-sided containers, whether they're, you know, little cat food cans or soup cans or whatever else, and put them all around, you know, that area where the grass looks good and where the grass doesn't look good, and then run your system. Do this the next time you're going to be running your sprinkler system, because I find so often that while one area is getting, you know, a good inch, inch and a half of water, which is what you want to put out, there can be a very, very close to it that only gets a quarter to a half an inch of water and that's the one when things starts to dry out uh when things start to dry out that's where the grass is going to suffer and even with you know just not all sprinkler systems are created the same and not all sprinkler companies are as careful as they should be but i find that uh, while it could be while it could be a fungal problems I I so often see that it's just an issue where one area is not getting as much water as the area next to it. So it's real easy to check. Like I say, just uh, you know, put out some little straight-sided saws used to give away. I don't think they have them anymore, but they used to have like a little mini rain gauge that held like an inch and a half, and you just go put these things around in your yard and then run your system and then go look to see if it's all if all of your yard is getting the same amount of water if not many times sprinkler heads can be adjusted sometimes the sprinkler head can be switched out uh or sometimes they just get a little bit clogged so that would be the first place that i would check especially since you're not uh seeing new grass coming back into the area even with the fungal disease we should be seeing new grass spreading in from you know, from the sides pretty quickly. Uh, once you determine and make sure that it is getting evenly watered, if you want to, you can move out where you've got good grass and just dig up some little two or three inch squares that'll never be missed. Go transplant them into the middle of the dead spot and that'll sure help speed up the recovery. But I, my guess at this point is simply that it is not getting the same amount of water or perhaps the soil is just more shallow and you can determine that. Howard Garrett used a golf uses a golf club that's uh, just sawed off and sharpened that he can probe down into the ground and occasionally we see that where there's just a big shelf of rock much closer to the surface so the grass doesn't get as big a a good root system down but I I would check for the um, evenness of watering before I did anything else okay well um, the other question I have if I wanted to speed up the replacement of the grass this is funny. I was at HEB yesterday, and they have some St. Augustine. I want to call them squares, but they're rectangles. Uh huh. A dollar and a half. So does it matter if it's not the same Augustine I have in my yard? I because I don't know what kind I have. It may look a little different. Uh, Floratam, for instance, is a little bit coarser tougher grass with a little bit larger leaves. Uh, palmetto is uh, a, a more dwarf grass and slower growing. So if you're mowing regularly, it's all going to work out very well. But if <laughs> if it goes for a while between mowings, you may find that one, one spot grows taller than the other. One spot, the, the blades seem to be a little bit wider than the other. But, uh, you know, I'm not that much of a fanatic about having having a perfect yard because that just doesn't exist but uh the the thing about 
uh, buying squares or plugs of St. Augustine, they need to be planted very soon after they are dug from the field. That's why uh, that's why we don't carry grass, for instance, because I part of my early years I worked on a grass farm and learned that if that grass stays stacked on a pallet for more than 24 hours, it really starts deteriorating. So if they have their grass spread out, I mean, where it's just one layer thick, yeah, you might get uh, a good quality grass to plant, but boy, be real careful because sometimes that top square looks good, but you go two or three down and you'll see that it's yellowing. You'll see that it feels warm to the touch because it just, I mean, it, it should be planted the day after it's cut from the field. So make absolutely certain that you're getting a good quality grass if you're going to go to the trouble of planting it. Well, they don't have it by the pallets anyway. They just had a little stack. <laughs> yeah, well, but I mean, even if it's stacked three deep, we used to always tell people, um, if you can't get all your grass planted the day you receive it, spread it out one layer thick. Even if you have to put it on the sidewalk, on the driveway, um, it, it should be one layer thick. <laughs> it should be even a stack of three or four squares because the bottom squares are going to begin deteriorating. So uh, just, just check it real carefully. What I do is lift up the top layer of grass and stick your hand in. If it feels cool, if it feels you know comfortable to the touch it's probably okay if it feels warm and clammy that grass is starting to deteriorate and I sure wouldn't pay a penny for it right so if I plant it on what's there now it won't get the fungus that was there um it's doubtful. The most common fungus we have is called brown patch. It's a rhizoctonia fungus, and it really is only active spring and fall. When we have uh, warm days and cool nights, that's what sort of activates the fungus. And uh, we're going to be very shortly into where we have warm days and warm nights. So not likely that the grass is going to pick up anything in the way of a fungus. You can always, if you want to be safe uh, while you're buying that grass, uh, buy a package of whole ground cornmeal, or I think HEB calls it stone ground, and sprinkle a bunch of that around because that grows a beneficial fungus called trichoderma, which will totally wipe out the brown patch fungus. Is that the thing that same as a throwback, whatever that's called? I don't know what a throwback is. No, throwback, I, patch or something? No, there's something called take-all patch. But uh, yeah, take all. It it's a different fungus. It's the same genus. It's a rhizoctonia, but it can show up in hotter weather. But I've not seen any take all patch showing up yet this year. Okay. And the cornmeal will all control right. that just like it does the regular brown patch. Yeah, and I'm lucky. I already have cornmeal. <laughs> just don't get that stuff for it's made for baking because they've taken all no. the goodness away from it don't get what they call enriched because it's not just a good old whole ground cornmeal because it's not the cornmeal that's the magic it's a trichoderma fungus that grows on whole ground cornmeal and that'll right. wipe out everything from toenail fungus to athlete's foot to oak wilt to brown patch yeah i listened to this guy bob webster Oh, I don't know if you can trust him, but he has a lot of experience. <laughs> Jan, you have a wonderful Sunday. It's always good to hear from you. Thank you. You're right, welcome. So Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Next up is Diane. Good morning, Diane. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I spread uh, cedar oil yesterday uh-huh. morning, and I'm wondering 
if that doesn't work, how long do I need to wait before I put out beneficial nematodes? Because I'm trying to get rid of chiggers and fleas and fire ants. Well, the um, it, it is strictly up to you. The cedar oil, uh, you know, lasts literally for a few hours. And cedar oil is a repellent, not a killer. It's going to make the mosquitoes and fire ants and fleas want to go somewhere else. But it's not going to eliminate them. So if you're really trying to drive them out, you're probably going to have to be spraying once a week or so to really encourage them to go elsewhere. The beneficial nematodes, on the other hand, they act. Actually, uh, in the case of fire ants and in the case of fleas, they actually kill the whole colony. They don't do much against chiggers. Uh, the cedar oil is much better against the chiggers, but... Um uh, you know, you should see, I would probably make two applications of cedar oil about a week apart. Then I would give it another week and decide if you want to go back and put down the beneficial nematodes. But the, the mode of action is totally different. The, uh, the nematodes totally wipe out the fleas and the fire ants. Doesn't mean that more queens won't come in. Doesn't mean that the neighborhood raccoons won't bring some more mm-hmm. fleas in mm-hmm. when they make their nocturnal outings. But, um, uh, you know, start with the cedar oil. Like I say, I'd spray. I'd give it a week. I'd spray a second time and uh, then wait another week and judge if you've gotten the success you were hoping for. Okay. And um, also, does spinosad kill grasshoppers? Uh, it Only if they are very, very young. Um, in fact, not much kills the big old mature grasshoppers uh, other than your foot. Or sometimes that's where they're big enough you could use your shotgun on them. But um, <laughs> the, the, there's not a whole lot, you know, that will get the the big old grasshoppers. If you have a bad infestation, see if you can find some of the product called NOLO, N-O-L-O, stands for Nosema locustri, which is a bacteria that basically it sickens the grasshoppers. It doesn't kill them outright, but grasshoppers are highly cannibalistic. You put it out when you have young grasshoppers, they eat it, they get sick, they stop feeding, and then the big grasshoppers eat the little grasshoppers, they get the bacteria. Bacteria, they stop feeding, they get sick, and it uh, it gets them under control, especially if you get it out while the grasshoppers are young. But uh, spinosad, uh, it's, it's going to get the little bitty ones, but it's not going to get the, the big old eat-a-whole-plant-a-day ones. That's the ones I have. <laughs> well, and put is, out, is it you liquid? know, uh, spinosad or the lo- no, 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 low. no, no, the no low is a bait. It's about the consistency of, oh, golly, what can I compare it to? It, it's kind of flaky. It's not like cornmeal, but uh, um, you could, what I frequently do is I'll pick a windy day and I'll just stand, you know, at the up upwind area and I'll just grab a handful and just throw it up in the air and uh, let the wind distribute it. It goes a long way. A one-pound bag will probably do half an acre. Um, and you want to keep it in the refrigerator. If you don't have a huge area to do, get the one-pound bag, put out maybe a third of it, put out a third of it a week later, and then do it you know again one week later. Like I say, it's not going to immediately have an effect on the big grasshoppers, but uh, there's still lots of those little guys out there, and you just kind of start at the bottom of the food chain. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. 
it's my pleasure. The other thing I always recommend is uh, put out a bird feeder or two because birds eat lots of grasshoppers and even the seed eaters, even things like the cardinals that we think of as just they, they eat nothing but sunflower seeds and all. When they are raising their young, which they're doing right now, they need a diet that's higher in protein and uh, they will they will feast on grasshoppers and caterpillars the same way the wrens and titmice do. So having a bird feeder or two out is always a big help as well. I'll do that then. All right, back to gardening on this beautiful, humid Sunday morning. It's going to be Dave and Angie and Mike and Gary, and Dave is up first. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Bob. What, morning, sir. What, what is your recommended St. Augustine for full sun? Floratam. Okay. Uh, Floratam is the toughest, most drought-resistant St. Augustine. Uh, if you don't know where the name comes from, it was a joint project of uh, the University of Florida and Texas A&M, hence the not-too-complex name of Floratam. But uh, they developed it as a coastal grass, which was very resistant to chinch bugs and would stand up to hot, dry weather. So, yeah, sunny areas. It's a little coarser. It doesn't feel quite as nice to walk on barefoot. But if you're looking for the tough St. Augustine, Floratam's the one you're looking for. And it's fairly available around here? It certainly should be. Um, You know, you've got places like Dell's that actually grow their own grass a little way south of San Antonio. Um, uh, Thomas Stone and Landscape, uh, Bill brings in uh, good good grass uh, from several places around. Those are probably the first two places I I would check for quality grass. Okay, well, that's the easy question. Last fall, I called you. I'd walked out the front door in, uh, like, September, and a red bud that I had planted in March had been mutilated by a deer. Yes, sir. You recommended the ashes and the slurry and everything else, and we did that right away. And, Uh you know, uh, the, the tree survived. It looks really good as I'm looking at it right now. On Friday, uh, we had some some your your recommended folks come out and look at a air spade project, and uh, we showed them that, and they said, in, in light of the fact that you know it's probably an inch in diameter, and only maybe a half inch wasn't destroyed in the fall, and right. the comment made was that as the tree grows, there's going to be no live tissue around that and and the trunk won't be strong enough to support the tree i'm afraid i don't agree with that because i have seen and and when you look at the area of damage you will normally see some smooth tissue that slowly overgrows that wound it doesn't happen overnight but um and there's always going to be a little patch of dead wood there but uh in in dealing you know with some with Good arborist uh, David Vaughn was telling me that um, that even a hollow tree is probably eighty percent as strong as a tree with a solid trunk. So, you know, I would watch that area, and I think that you will see, as I have seen, it doesn't happen overnight, but you will see that callus tissue begin to regrow around that area. And I've seen trees totally healed, you know, twenty, thirty years after they got girdled that way. So uh, we're going to have to watch it and see, but uh, nature has an amazing ability to heal itself. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm already seeing that what you just described, and it was um, it was uh, Mr. Vaughn's very fine replacement that made the comment. <laughs> Well, let's just say he doesn't have as much experience as Mr. Vaughn. And, and I, you know, I'm not looking at your tree, but, uh, I, I will respectfully disagree with him. I, uh, I, and again, a redbud is not a giant tree. I mean, if this were, you know, if this were a tree that was going to get 50 feet tall and have a thousand pound canopy on top of it, uh, then maybe we need to look a little bit more carefully at it. But, uh, redbuds don't grow to that kind of stature and, uh, rarely, I mean, <laughs> when we had these storms blow through Thursday night, I've seen an awful lot of tree damage and the only redbuds I've seen damaged were where something bigger fell on top of them. So I'm going to keep on caring for that redbud and maybe I'll plant another one somewhere else in the yard. Hard, but uh, I'm. I think that little guy's doing what he ought to do, and I think five years from now, um, you and um, and the the new fellow may be a little amazed at how quickly it recovers. Well, all right, that's good. We'll proceed with that. There's enough ways to spend money without pulling it out and digging another one. <laughs> especially, yeah, especially on a slower growing tree like a good redbud. Yeah, but I will say we really uh, we we really like that firm and and. Uh, the young man, I think, is a really fine guy. Oh yeah, he's he just recently returned from the East Coast, and uh, right. I'm hearing nothing but good things. But um, we'll discuss uh, regrowth on uh, girdle trees sometime. <laughs> All right, thank you. My pleasure. It's good to talk to you always. Thank you, Dave. Right. Okay, next up is Angie. Good morning, Angie. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I wanted to ask you two questions today. Okay. Uh, we went to this lady that sells plants uh, just off the street, and uh-huh. I bought a um, thing called Indian Carnation Tree. Right. Uh-huh. I love the way it looked, and it's about four feet tall. And right. And I just want to find out uh, how do I transplant it, uh, and what does it need? Well, it's going to have to stay in a pot. Uh, it is in the jasmine family. It's in the same family as uh, oh, a lot of different jasmines. But Indian carnation is a tropical tree. It will not survive a hard freeze. It really, unless you live in Brownsville, I would never suggest planting it into the ground. I would keep it in a pot. Pretty white flowers, fragrant white flowers, but it's not something that can stay outside year-round. It's going to have to come in in the winter months. It's tender enough that I think even covering it is probably not going to be enough to protect it if we have any kind of winter at all. But other than that, good soil, uh, regular watering, little fertilizer every two to four weeks, it will reward you with beautiful fragrant flowers all summer long. Okay. Um, does it last? Does it last several years? Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's it. Think of it as a tropical shrub, like a hibiscus or a bougainvillea. Um, okay. It can be pretty for you for the next ten or fifteen years. Okay, good. Okay, now um, for Mother's Day, I got several hydrangeas. Uh huh. So I want to find out uh, where I can where can I plant them and how do I transplant them? 
Okay, and these are the ones with the big, colorful pink flowers and blue flowers. Yeah. Okay, yeah. wonderful plants. But um, where they're going to need to grow is in good soil in a shady area. A little morning sun is fine, but they don't want the hot Texas uh, afternoon sun. And they are very, very thirsty. You're going to have to water those hydrangeas twice as often as you water anything else in the landscape. But if okay. you have an area where you can work in some compost, make the soil really rich, they will be uh, the most beautiful things you've seen. They, they just are a little bit more work to maintain. Uh-huh. And I, uh-huh. yeah, because, because they're so thirsty, I don't recommend planting a huge batch of them. But hey, I was born in Tyler, Texas, where they grow yeah. world class hydrangeas. And oh, yeah. golly, I've seen them, seen them in Northern California and, and lots of places. They're absolutely spectacular. But keep them in the shade, keep them well watered and fertilized, and you will enjoy them for years to come. Okay, well, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. You are certainly welcome, Angie. All right, Uh, we'll talk again. All right, in order, it's Mike and Gary and Mark and Ann, and Mike is up first. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Mr. Webster. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. I have a few questions, and I know I've heard your answers before, but I want to make sure before I proceed. Fine. Uh, I've got full sun in the yard. I do want to put some grass in the back, and I'm going to go with the floor tam. Okay. Um, about a month ago, I called Dell. They said they were going to have another, I guess, another crop in the first part of June to be ready for some more. They were all out. Okay. Yes, sir. That was the last time I talked to them, but so I'm going to plan on doing that. But I want to prepare the yard. But right now, I have pretty much weeds and stickers. Uh-huh. Now, about a month ago, I wanted to test to see how the orange oil and vinegar worked. Right. So I, so I sprayed an area, probably like about a 10 by 10 area. Uh-huh. Just wanted to test it. This was a month ago. Not one single weed has come back in that area. Yes, sir. In a whole month. So if I spray the yard with the vinegar and orange oil, what is the, the suggestion of how, how long should I wait to put grass? 24 hours. Oh, so the orange oil and vinegar won't harm? No, grass? no, sir. There, there's no residue left in the soil, and um, the orange oil and vinegar works from the top down, not from the roots up. That's why we just coat the foliage, and we don't worry about soaking the soil. It kills the top, and on tender, weak weeds, like grass burrs are, and dandelions, and henbit, and all those other things, you know, it just totally kills them out. But there is no residue left behind. But you don't have to go overboard on, you know, trying to kill out every little thing that's there. The thing that is that is really important when you put your new grass down is that it has to make good contact with the soil underneath. So you can lay it, if you've just got weeds here and there, you can lay it right on top of those weeds, and it'll take just fine, and it'll choke the weeds out. So we don't have to have a perfect, pristine, you know, totally blank canvas to put our new grass on top of. Uh, just as long as the dirt that's underneath that new floor tam comes in contact with the dirt where you're putting it down. And that's why we roll it. That's why you go out and rent one of these water-fillable rollers that weighs a couple of hundred pounds once it's got the water in it. You're rolling it back and forth, not to level things, but to simply take out any air pockets. And 
you know, you don't need to till it or do anything like that. So it's fine to kill the weeds you want to, but uh, don't spend a fortune. Don't go overboard. You're going to have enough work to get that grass in and rolled and kept watered until it gets some roots down. Yeah, I was surprised at how much orange oil cost. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the nice thing is you don't have to use very much of it. That's right. Uh, Another question uh, with that, um, I was thinking about getting a small load, maybe a yard or two of some really good compost to uh-huh. put down, to put down and just lightly spread it around that around the yard. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because here's the reason. Compost is still producing lots and lots of carbon dioxide. Your grass's new roots want oxygen. They do not want carbon dioxide. So what would be a very good thing to do would be to plant your grass first and then put some compost on top of it. We want the compost up, you know, on the, around the foliage where it can use the carbon dioxide, not down around the roots. Now, by the time you get that grass, it's, you know, weather's likely to be pretty warm, so be sure that you use a good finished compost, not compost that's still hot, and be sure you water well afterwards. But, no, we, we always want to keep our compost on top of anything we're planting, not underneath it. So I'm really glad you asked that question. Yeah, I'm glad, too, because I was going about to do that. Um, other question, uh, flower beds, um, Mother's Day, right before Mother's Day, I prepared some some flower beds around a tree and in, in the front of the house bought flowers stuff you know put about four to six inches of some mulch down in there and um i'm starting to see some you know a little bit of weeds coming through not a lot enough just to go out there and hand pick them out but uh-huh. what can i put in there as a preventive whether it's a granular or a liquid that i can just <laughs> spread out the whole, it's not a big area just yeah. spread out the whole area as to help prevent it I wish I wish it was that easy. Um, <laughs> you know, your mulch is going to help suppress them. But uh, like my old friend Alton Grimm used to tell me, I would worry about soil if it didn't have a few weeds in it. So, um, you know, you, your flowers are doing well. But I tell you, every afternoon when I go home, whether it's my vegetables, whether it's I have flowers, or whether it's where I'm getting ready to plant more, you know, I, I, I stretch my back a lot because I spend a lot of time bent over. And there's anything, see, it's, it's virtually impossible to have a chemical that can tell the difference in a good plant and a bad plant. To, uh, all these herbicides, a plant is a plant. And, uh, if you're putting in something that's going to hurt those weeds, it's probably going to hurt the flowers you planted. So, uh, just, uh, stretch the back, pull them out and, uh, and call it exercise. You have time for one more quick question. Go right ahead. Uh, uh, liquid liquid molasses. Um, I have some. Um, now, if I wanted to use that, would it be a good idea or would it not do any good if I sprayed the yard with it prior to putting the grass down? Um, it would be a fine idea. It would be a fine idea. The rate would be one to two tablespoons per gallon. You can spray it before you plant, and you can spray it after you plant and spray those flower beds. It's uh, Molasses is a stimulator of good bacteria, so it's going to benefit the soil and the plants anywhere you use it. Just just yeah, keep it down to one to two tablespoons per gallon. Yeah, I've done that a couple of times for those flower beds. So you answered all my questions. I thank you, Mr. Webster. 
I finally got through to you. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad you did, and as I always tell people, Mr. Webster was my father. I'm Bob, so okay. you call Bye, me anytime Bob. I can help you, Mike. <laughs> All right, thank you so much. You have a good yes, day. sir. You're welcome. You too. Goodbye. All right, let's uh, talk to Gary next. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for your morning, services sir. here. Well, it's my great uh, pleasure. I have a question about uh, cut ants. Uh, we uh-huh. had them on an oak tree in our front yard. And uh, we kind of got rid of those with DE, but we have a big colony of them uh, in the lot next to us that I'm wanting to get rid of. Okay. Um, They're tough. Um, There's been a huge amount of money spent and, you know, not a lot of progress made on something that's really effective against them. Most, the most common thing I hear, if you can get a hose over there, is flooding them out. I've known people using diatomaceous earth. I find that using a wettable sulfur many times helps, but a lot of times just a flood into their burrow is the most effective thing you can do. And now, th- these are not the red harvester ants. These are the true cut ants, the, the black ones that carry the leaves off. Mm, yes, they do. They oh. carry the leaves from the, from the surrounding trees and whatnot yeah. into their, their colony. And, of course, what they're doing, they're not eating the leaves, but there's a big chamber under, underground where they pile these leaves, and then the ants actually feed on a fungus that grows on the leaves. Um, the, the thing that I have had the most success with, uh, because, you know, where I have them, you know, I can't, I can't get a lot of water to them, but I use a product which is called wettable sulfur, usually sold as sulfur 50W, get it at a hardware store or a feed store, and I will dust this liberally, probably five to ten pounds, over the top of that area where the ants have their underground chamber because sulfur is a natural fungicide and being wettable when it rains or when it gets watered it actually carries the sulfur down through the soil down into their chamber where it kills off the fungus that the ants rely on to eat and survive and that has worked well for me but again I talk to people almost every week about the cut ant problem and many of them just two or three repeated just floodings of that mound. You can take a rebar or something like that, and you can actually poke a hole down through the top. You'll feel it break into that chamber, and uh, especially if you're in a clay-type soil, you can you can flood them out. Okay, awesome. Um, up in the top of our oak tree that they were in, there's, uh-huh. a, there's an area up there that is yellowed. Could that be from them? Not likely. Not likely. It may be a little drought. It may be a little bit of storm damage, but uh, they will. You, your tree will recover very quickly from that damage. Where they are going up a tree, if you want to stop them totally, wrap a piece of aluminum foil or a piece of plastic wrap around the trunk and get a product called Tangle Foot. You don't want to put it directly on the bark, but you then. Spread a band about two inches wide, and the ants cannot stop it. If you want, I'll get you back on hold. We'll talk right after the news here on KTSA Radio San Antonio. All right, back to gardening. And, uh, oh, once again, it's just such a beautiful morning out there. Uh, Chris, we're up to Gary next, aren't we? Or, or did we have? Okay. 
Hey, Gary's still holding. Let's go back and talk to Gary a little bit more. Uh, this material called Tanglefoot, it is the stickiest substance you have ever seen, and uh, it doesn't wash off. I mean, it kind of reminds you of the material they use in a glue trap, and you want to put a band that's oh, at least an inch or two wide. If you make a real narrow band of it, the ants will just throw one of their buddies on top of it and then walk across his back. And obviously, this doesn't work on your roses and your begonias, but on some Something that has basically just one or just two or three trunks, you can put this little band of tanglefoot around and you'll totally stop the ants from going up the tree that way if you need to. That sounds great. I have a couple of more quick questions. Okay. Uh, I need a ground cover, good ground cover in a shaded area. Get shade all day. And okay. uh, also, we have a beautiful magnolia tree. I wonder what's the best kind of care for that. Okay, well, ground cover, first of all, um, the toughest and hardiest is Asian jasmine, which will grow in the shade or in the sun. Um, it's a little, takes a little while to get established. We always say the first year it sleeps, second year it creeps, third year it leaps. But that is one option. Uh, English ivy is a, another option. If you want a vining plant, you need to trim it to keep it from going up into the trees, but uh, it's a it's very durable ground cover. There are uh, some others that that they, you know, everyone has its advantages and its disadvantages. There is a ground cover called Vinca. It's a true Vinca. There's Vinca Major, Vinca Minor. It's fast growing. It has little lavender flowers. Occasionally, it becomes infested with some little caterpillars that can just devour the foliage overnight. It always comes right back. But if you plant the Vinca, you've just you've got to be on the watch for caterpillar damage. My grandfather had a huge area of this, and uh, a lot of experience with that and it's pretty it's fast growing but again got to got to keep an eye on it um, there are a couple of flowering things there is a plant called ruelia uh, the form of it that is called blue shade and it has sort of a gray green leaf and sort of a lavender flower it's not as neat and you know well kempt as some of the others but it does fine in the shade and it blooms pretty much throughout the warm weather with this lavender purple flower so uh, blue shade is another option and if you like the look of grass but it's too shady for grass there is a dwarf monkey grass also called dwarf mondo grass that is like a dark green super compact monkey grass that uh just makes a dense beautiful ground cover if it's in an area you're going to walk through no matter what you put down i would uh, put down some stepping stones so that you're not trampling tramping down whatever you plant a final option if it's not too big an area uh, you can plant mint either peppermint or uh, black stem peppermint or spearmint if you're into iced tea and mojitos (laughs) it's kind of a it's it's a very fragrant ground cover but i remember years ago when i worked with uh, my old friend alton grimm up in bernie we had a big area of it in in a remote part of the nursery and we used to go drive the electric cart through it every now and then just because the whole area smelled like peppermint candy for 30 minutes after you did that so uh, those are those are all options worth considering none of them is perfect but uh any of them any of them could do well in that area okay that sounds good okay and about the magnolia 
The magnolia is a tree that, you know, it's very happy in Birmingham or Shreveport or even Houston, but in San Antonio, it doesn't really like our soils and it doesn't really like super hot soil. So you're going to do better in an area that has deeper soil. If you're in Stone Oak, you're going to have to build a big raised planter to grow a magnolia tree. But if you're in King William, it's going to be very, very easy. I think the biggest mistake that I see people make with magnolias is trimming the lower limbs off. If you look at any really big majestic magnolia, you'll see that the limbs practically touch the ground, and the tree loves that because it shades the soil and keeps the soil cooler. And I think that's very important to grow a magnolia well in this area. The last thing I would tell you is that there is... uh, I'm not going to call it a dwarf, but I'm going to call it a slower-growing magnolia that is called Little Jim, G-E-M. And because it doesn't spread its roots out as quickly into our lower-quality soils, Little Jim is probably the easiest of the magnolias to grow here makes a pretty tree has the same fragrant white flowers if you ever dine at the papado restaurants that is the magnolia that they have planted around those restaurants and take a look at them they're 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 a pretty tree but i think they're always going to be more successful here than the big old uh, magnolia grandiflora they usually call it a southern magnolia little gem looks just like a slightly more compact form of it and a whole lot easier to grow here All right. Okay, I think that pretty much covered it for me. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for the call. (laughs) Goodbye. All right. right. Next up is going to be Mark. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Well, (laughs) we have almost a crisis here. Well, we've had probably five or six rains of like one to four inches this year. Yes, sir. So invasive things are just invading prolifically. (laughs) Um, so, so like Bermuda grass, nut grass, tie vine, all those things are just going. Well, we have one that's worse. And I just figured out, I think what it is, is um, field bindweed. Okay. It, um, it came up in something we brought into our orchard. And it uh-huh. started out eight years ago, maybe it's just around a tree. And, and I've, I don't know, probably hundreds of times chopped off all the vines. Yeah. Well, so I chopped it off for like the fifth time about five days ago, all the little green things. Uh, there's a lot. I went back yesterday, and the whole 20-foot area, probably 20% of it is covered with green leaves again, and it's spreading. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> um, the, the chopping doesn't work. So I, I, my theory was either, well, there's a, there's a big pear tree in the middle of it that never produces. I uh-huh. thought about just getting rid of the pear tree and trying to solarize the whole 20-foot area. Or going nuclear and using Roundup or something. Well, Roundup's not going to no. get rid of it either. Um, <laughs> you uh, know, if I didn't know you, I'd tell you you're just going to have to move. But, um, yeah. yeah, once Definitely. once you get, it goes by the name of bindweed, wild morning glory, and it makes that thickened underground runner, and uh, it's, you know, it, it's the devil to deal with. Um, in there, there just is no simple solution. Um, 
you know, a thick mulch will suppress it and make it easier to pull out. Uh, the vinegar and orange oil will work just as well as the Roundup, but it just only kills the top, and you have to just be you have to be doing it once a week. Eventually, it will give up and stop coming back out. But it is uh, that and Smilax are just uh, just the super invasive things, and. Uh, it's, you know, it, I, I wish I could tell you an easy solution, but it doesn't exist. You just have to be extraordinarily persistent and not let it, you know, get to where it has a bunch of foliage, which is, you know, resupply those underground stems so they can sprout out again. But I would think about, you know, solarizing, but maybe not the whole area. Don't, you know, don't totally take out that pear tree, but do a little, pie-shaped section that uh, covers maybe a fourth of the area, leave that in place for, you know, a month, then move it around to the next section and just work your way around that tree so that you're not just uh, totally suffocating the entire tree all at one time. But even with that, you're going to have a little bit of re-sprouting that you're going to have to deal with by hand. Yeah. One, one problem, we have a nice stand of standing cypress that I'm trying to work around, so that really complicates trying to cut it out. But Oh, yeah. So if, 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 I, if I'm going to solarize it, how close do you think I can go to that pear tree and not be a problem? Or just you, you, can go right up, you can go right up to the trunk of the tree. But like I say, don't, you know, don't okay. go 100% of the way around it because solarizing works through heat and oxygen deprivation. And if you that, – that pear tree has – roots that go out an awful long way so you're going to work your way around you're not going to you know you're 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 not going to totally smother that tree's root system at one time you're going to do enough to kill the bindweed without seriously impacting the root of the pear tree and you're going to do like i say in four sections you're just going to work your way around that tree and uh but but don't expect that even that to be a hundred percent you'll just get it down to a manageable level and you're going to have to keep after it with your grubbing hoe and um you know orange oil and vinegar it's just once you get it started because you got to do it now too because once it starts flowering everywhere there's a flower it's going to have a little seed pod with uh four or more seeds in there and uh you know the seedlings are very recognizable but it comes from seed it comes from the roots and it is i consider it to be one of the most serious weeds out there yeah yeah well it it's never flowered and and it it really didn't take off that till this year. So so do do I need to seal down the? Well, I actually have a drip hose around the pear tree. So uh-huh. but oh but I guess I don't want to water it anyhow. Well, so do I need to seal down the plastic? Well, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to do something to keep it from blowing away. And so, I mean, it doesn't have to be 100% sealed. But remember, steam kills better than dry heat. So, um, you know, I I always recommend moistening the soil if it's not already wet before you solarize. But we're not really into solarizing weather yet. I mean, you had you were probably in the mid-50s yesterday. And, you know, you you want 80-degree nights and 105-degree days for solarizing to really be effective. And we're still 30 days away from that, hopefully. Right. Now, I did vinegar and orange oil once, and it, it seemed to kind of turn yellow, but it didn't wilt. Um, so it enough. Uh, and you're using 20% vinegar? Right. Yes. I, you may need to spray it a little bit more heavily, and it probably wasn't hot enough. So so a, a mist, is, is it, it's better to actually wet it, not just a mist on the spring? 
Um, you want the you want to moisten the leaves to the point of dripping off. You don't want to saturate the soil, but you want to you want to spray to the point of uh, of drip off. Okay. Okay. Uh, all right, Carl. It's, <laughs> I went up there and I like to freak that just a Carl. It's solid. Um, elbow bush. Do you have any tips on getting rid of elbow bush? We planted them and we're regretting it. <laughs> Grub and hoe. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's a woody plant, and you can grub it out. Are you going to replant something else in this area? Um, I don't have to. I mean, some of these are 15 feet across now. Yeah. You know, yeah. again, it's not organic, but kind of like mesquite. I sometimes use a little bit of diesel just to kill woody root systems, but um, okay. um, yeah. grubbing hole is sure where I would start. Nobody with a big garden needs to join a health club, that's for sure. I was thinking about chopping out the main crown and then putting like ten inches of wood mulch over it. I mean, I mean, flattening it all to the ground, cutting everything off above ground, and then putting heavy mulch. Yeah, and this is one time you might want to put down some weed block or some plastic that you're going to go back and pull up a year later. But that's what I do when I'm expanding my garden. I hate weed block because it just destroys the soil underneath it. But it's uh, the most effective way I've ever found of eliminating native grasses and things like that. And I can put it down for a season, go back and pull it up. And with little effort, I can restore that soil to good health. But uh, it's it's my go-to way for killing hackberries and poison ivy and, uh, and some of the really tough native grasses. So that may be something you need to do. These are these are all under live oaks too. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, last quick thing: we 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 have a painted bunting nest with babies in it and our blackberries. Oh and wow! We, found a, we, we saw a snake about a hundred feet away. Is there uh-huh. a natural snake repellent that might work? Cedar granules, uh, the cedar repel by Nature's Creation is probably okay. the best snake repellent out there. But okay. but spread it around a bit because uh, if that Go snake is yeah, if that yeah. snake is the Lindheimer's rat snake. Um, yeah. One of their primary foodstuffs is birds, and they don't know the difference in a grackle and a painted budding. And uh, <laughs> and right. you and I do. Do you have a good snake stick? No, I, I pretty much I take a rake and pin them down, and then just take my heavy gloves and pick them up. Well, now, now we, have, some, we don't have rattlesnakes, so I can do that. But, well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, spend a hundred bucks. Go to a good feed store. And okay. get a, a good snake stick because there are places that you can't pin them down, and there are a lot of times you think you've got them pinned down, and all of a sudden they wiggle out under the rock pile. With a right. good snake stick, um, and okay. mine's made out of, uh, I don't know whether it's stainless, it's probably stainless steel and aluminum, but uh, this is the thing the snakes, uh, the zoos use to handle cobras and things like that, and uh, you can safely transport snakes without injuring them, and you can sometimes reach into a confined area i'm thinking of the rattlesnake that i took off of roberta's porch a couple of summers ago and uh snakes that i've gotten out of a wood pile things like that i mean it's it's one of the best investments i've ever made and i actually gave one to the bernie fire department because those guys that run into burning buildings and climb 100 foot ladders i found out they're scared to death of rattlesnakes (laughs) And so oh, wow. that was my that was my gift to them as a thank you for the wonderful course that they allowed me to take, uh, you know, in the, with the Citizens Fire Academy. So uh, it's worth the money. Get Diane to give you one for Father's Day. Yeah. It's coming up real quickly here, and uh, it would be a good investment. Okay. One thing we do, we have a lot of birdhouses on T-posts. Uh-huh. I put a small piece of 
a bird netting around it. Oh yeah, you have to you have to check it regularly because it catches them and they're they're caught. Yeah, but uh, yeah. That, that works very well. They try to get through it, and it, we've caught a bunch of snakes that way. But oh, I mean, yeah. we don't want them to die in the net. You have to take little tiny scissors and cut them out. You know, if you want. <laughs> been there, <laughs> done that. It works. Okay. Thanks a lot, Bob. You take care. You're, you too, Mark. Good to talk to you. Bye. All right. We are back to gardening. Uh, quickly, somebody was asking about powdery mildew. That's that white stuff you're getting on your crepe myrtles and uh, maybe your squash plants and things. It's a fungus disease. It starts through the spores that float through the air every time you take a deep breath. Uh, you're breathing in and out thousands of those little spores. They land on a wet leaf on a crepe myrtle or something, and then you get that powdery white stuff on the leaves. It will tend to go away when it gets really hot and dry. Crepe myrtles in particular, you can buy varieties that are more mildew-resistant, as they are called. And if you want to spray, you can use any kind of safe fungicide uh especially like just soaking cornmeal in water, spraying on the leaves. But it's not going to be harmful or fatal to the plants, and it's going to go away when it gets hot and dry. So not something to then spend a lot of time worrying about. Uh, to the phone lines, it's Ann and Donna and Sandra. I think we've got one line open. Grab it if you like. But Ann is up next. Good morning, Ann. Hello, Bob. Hi. Thank you so much for your show. It's my pleasure. We have so many problems. I think we may need to move. <laughs> well, let's start with a couple of the easy ones and see if we can solve them. Okay. Um, I'm in my 70s, and the last year or so, I've decided I needed to mow our little tiny yard for exercise. Uh-huh. Right. I don't know if we have any real grass left. We have so much crab grass, and I went to um, Home Depot, and they suggested we'd be gone, an ortho product to spray to kill the crabgrass. It won't now, kill the crabgrass. And a, and a <clears throat> pardon me, and a house cat who goes, we take the house cat out for about an hour or so a day. And we have neighborhood cats who mm-hmm. come over to the house. So I don't, of course, and I know you don't either want to put anything down that's going to be detrimental to any of the animals. Yeah, what and we'd be I gone on giving cancer. We'd be gone as a cancer causer. I would never put that down. Okay. Well, and, uh, we did it once, so I won't do it again. Uh, I I think at this point, I probably, we live out by Fair Oaks. I think uh-huh. I need someone who knows grass just to come and tell us if we have any of our real grass left. Who Who could do that? You know, there are not many people who offer that kind of service. Usually what you would do is dig up a little bit of what you have and take it to any good nursery. Hill Country African Violets is probably going to be the closest nursery to you, and they're out there just one exit further down. And you can take it over there, and they can look through and say, good bass, bad bad grass. Crab grass is going to die out as the weather gets hot. I don't really... I don't wouldn't worry about crabgrass other than to just mow it off. And if your yard is sunny, of course, the toughest, hardiest grass you can plant is Bermuda grass, and you can actually plant that from seed. But, um, 
you know, big yards tough to maintain, and you have to get over this idea that it has to be a perfect yard because unless you've got a full time staff of uh, seventeen, you know, groundskeepers, <laughs> everybody. Uh, I mean, you look at my yard. I've I've got some straggler daisy. I've got some crabgrass, and uh, I just mow it off. I water and fertilize, and by summertime, most of the Bermuda comes out, and uh, uh, it's not. They're not going to take a picture of my grass to put in southern living but i don't think that's what you're really looking for you're just looking for a reasonably nice grass that doesn't take a whole lot of work and so i'm you know if anything we're getting warm enough now for the price that you would pay somebody to come out and look at it you could buy two three pounds of bermuda grass seed and i would think about putting that out you'll have to water regularly to get it going and water Water fertilizer and the lawnmower are, you know, that's my that's my weed control package. Okay, the crabgrass, of course, is really, really thick. So if uh-huh. I put the seed out now, won't it just be crowded out by the crabgrass? Not if you. Go ahead. No, not not if you not if you mow with some regularity. You okay. know, I'd. I'd mow once a week, and uh, your Bermuda will choke out the crabgrass. Your Bermuda is a stronger grass than the crabgrass. So uh, your grab crabgrass is going to get weaker as the weather gets hotter. Your Bermuda is going to get stronger as the weather gets hotter. So okay. that's that's how I would deal with it. Now, any particular kind of Bermuda, or do I just go to a store like Home Depot and get Bermuda grass seed? You know, they shouldn't sell lumber at nurseries, and they shouldn't sell plants at Home Depot. Um, okay. Go to go to a good nursery. You're going to want okay. just com, common Bermuda. But, okay. uh, you know, if you get sick, you don't go to the grocery store to see a doctor. And uh, unfortunately, and, and, you know, we all shop Home Depot for plumbing parts and things like that, but those people simply should not be in the plant business because most of their plants are poor quality and very few of the people know anything about them. So uh, spend your money in a good nursery that uh, has good products and can tell you how to grow them. And, uh, um, I mean, if you're coming, golly, if you're coming into town, there's not really a nursery Far northwest, you go over on Bandera Road to come into Bernie. But uh, again, you're just uh, five or ten minutes from uh, Hill Country African Violets up there. Right. And if you go up right. to Comfort, if you go up to Kerrville, if you go up to Fredericksburg, you know you've got the plant house, you've got the friendly natives, you've got a bunch of bunch of nurseries up there. So make a trip to Fredericksburg and enjoy lunch up there, and stop by the friendly natives when you're up there. But there there are lots of places out there that I think would be a better place to shop for grass. Okay, or grass this seed. Is, this is my other really simple problem. Um, we've lived in our house. It's a new was a new subdivision when we moved in, uh-huh. and uh, there are a bunch of live oak trees that the the people builders kept. Uh-huh. And we have one on the side. We have a real small yard, which is fine for us because we're older. Uh, we have a live oak on the side, and then we have a live oak in the front, and they're uh-huh. big trees. Well, we live on the corner, so on one side of the live oaks, both of them, there's the street and then the sidewalk. Uh-huh. So what the live oak trees are doing now is they're sending out all these little suckers, and we've got like a forest in those places that they're taking over the side yard and the front yard, and I've read things to do for these, and one guy just said build a deck, but I don't think we can build a deck in our whole front yard. 
And, you know, when these little things come up, the little sucker plants, if you mow them, then the stems get stronger and stronger. So it's like stepping on nails. Well, those are called root sprouts. They're actually coming off the roots of the live oaks, and they are a sign. They are a sign that, yeah, they are a sign that the live oaks are stressed for some reason. And the most common reason is the builder piled soil up around the base of the trees when they leveled your lot to build your home. Um, You should be seeing a big broadening out of the trunk where those live oak trees get down to the ground if you don't see that you need to have somebody come in they use a tool called an air spade that simply blasts the soil away but something is stressing those oak trees and that's why they're putting up those little shoots uh, a healthy you know vigorous oak tree puts out very few root sprouts a stressed oak tree puts out hundreds if not thousands of root sprouts so you're looking at the results of a problem you're not looking at the cause of a problem so the first thing i would do is look very carefully at the base of those trees and if it looks like a telephone pole or a fence post coming up out of the ground someone has to remove the soil away from the sides of the trunk down to where your root flare is you do that and you will have many many fewer root sprouts come up but something is stressing those trees or you wouldn't have all those root sprouts well, do you think it's, I mean, really close to them, which right next to them almost is the sidewalk and then the street. Do you think that would do it, just covering up so much of the roots? Uh, well, it certainly would, but your how old is your home? Our home's 10 years, but like I said, these trees were on the land. Yep. They kind of well, saved some of the trees when if, they if, stuff in. If the main cause of the problem was the was the sidewalk in the street, this problem would have showed up ten years ago. Uh, the fact that it is, you know, piling soil around the trunks takes several years to really impact the trees, and we usually start seeing the flurry of root sprouts eight to ten years after the trees were covered up. Um, okay. If you know, if this were caused mainly by the street and the sidewalk, you would have seen it the first year you were in your home. And from what you're telling me i take it this problem that's just getting worse and worse and worse uh that that seems to be getting worse over time which makes me think it's more likely something like the trunks being buried too deep than something that they did to the trees 10 years ago okay how do how do you what it how do how do i tell what a root flare is if we were going to try to take some of the dirt away then how would we know where the root flare was well, you will look, and the base of the trunk will will broaden out, will literally flare out. A healthy tree, you know, all of a sudden the, the trunk is half again as wide as it is four feet up from the ground. Uh, it looks, it doesn't look like a pole sticking in the ground. It doesn't look like a telephone pole. It looks like a super broadening. I take people all the time. We've got trees here at uh, our nursery in town, and I can take them and show them exactly what a root flare looks like. And again, if you're going to go over to a nursery to uh, get some grass seed, you, they probably have smoke trees on the property that they will be happy to show you what a good root flare should look like. And is there anything I can do about these jungles of little little trees? I mean, they're just spreading. They're, the one in yep. the front is almost all the way across. 
our little well, tiny backyard. You, you get you get the root flare exposed, and the root sprouts will be less and less of a problem. It takes time to really get them under control, but you can do that. I have an oak tree that's about 18 inches in diameter, and in a storm about 10 years ago, it, it broke off, and it fell over, and there's just enough of the trunk remained attached uh, that the top has continued to live, even though 80% of the trunk was snapped in half. That has been a big shock to the tree, and all of a sudden, I had just root sprouts everywhere, but through, you know, cutting back, and I've, I've left it, I have a huge yard, uh, in fact, I guess you could say my yard several hundred acres, but I don't mind that it takes up a little bit more room, but... Um, after the tree got over the initial shock, I have just getting with a grubbing hoe. I've taken out eighty percent of the, you know, little sprouts and left three or four of them to come up and make basically good new trunks. But once you get that root flare exposed, once you remove the cause of the stress, you will have many fewer root sprouts to deal with. Okay, they're coming up. The grass is pretty thick where they're coming up. Mm-hmm. And I had read something that said just dig underground, and I thought, well, you know, I would be taking out the grass, but no, I mean, at this not. at this point, just mow it off and realize you're not going to go barefoot in that part of the yard for a while. Okay. If we need help with the tree, do you do you know who we could call? There is a good arborist that I happily recommend. He. Um, he's like you're describing when he turned 70. He said, I don't have to work this hard. I don't have to do the work myself. Uh, so I recommend a man named David Vaughn. And uh, you can just go to David Vaughn Arborist. And like I say, he is a consultant that will tell you exactly what to do and perhaps recommend people that can do that kind of work. But you certainly don't want to go just with the tree service that's driving down the road. You you want somebody right. that knows what they're doing. So I would, I would call David and have a consultation with him, and he can point you in the direction of what really needs to be done. Is it V-A-U-G-H-A-N? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, let's move right along with phone calls. It's going to be Donna and Sandra and Ruth and Claude, and Donna is next. Good morning, Donna. Good morning, Bob. It's nice Good to morning. talk with you. It's been a very, very long time. I was just thinking the same thing when I heard your voice. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing okay, thank you. Um, I've got a situation that I have never seen in my life. I have been or, uh, gardening organically for like 40 years. And I've never run into this before. You started very uh, young, ab- obviously. You, you started Pardon? when you were about five. I said you started very young. If you've been gardening oh. for 40 years, it must have been five years old when you started. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's nice to hear. Um, we've moved. We Several years ago, we moved from the country back into the city, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> But anyway, um, and, and and it's a place where there is almost totally shaded. I don't get hardly any sun anywhere, um, and it's been very hard to to garden. And uh, but there was a place on the patio. There's a brick patio in the back, and um, over to the side of a portion of the patio. Evidently, somebody had attempted to make a little garden because it's the only place that gets full sun for any part of the day. Okay. 
Okay, and so uh, I had never really done anything with it because it was it was around. Well, they made a little concrete border around it. Okay, mm-hmm. it's about okay. a three. It's about a four by three area. Uh-huh. Okay, so I'd never done anything with it because there were so many rocks in there that, and they're big ones, and I just didn't have the motivation to to bother with it. But I finally. <laughs> decided <laughs> this year I wanted to do something, and I thought, well, I'm going to make a raised garden above it. Mm-hmm. And so um, we we already had some landscaping bricks, mm-hmm. and um, my husband made a border around this this little area, this little area with those landscaping bricks, and uh, I filled it up with compost. Okay. Okay, and and um, I planted some uh, marigolds around the perimeter, and then I wanted to try to grow a couple of tomato plants. See, the sun that it gets is in the the afternoon. It gets hot sun for about four hours, and I thought, well, maybe I might get a few tomatoes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. And so anyway, so I did that last night in the middle of the night had to come out with our dog to do her business and I noticed something white growing on the top of the soil and uh not all the whole place but on a portion of it on the left hand side well it was the middle of the night and I were you know we're going to try to do anything then anyway so when I got up this morning I came out here it had when I first saw it in the middle of the night, it was just flat on on the top of the soil, okay, uh-huh. this very uh-huh. white-looking stuff, and um, pretty solid. And then this morning I came out, and it's changed composition from what I saw last night into something that's very foamy-looking. Yeah. yeah. And I, I took a little stick, and I... I uh, you know, messed with it a little bit, and it's very, uh, it's kind of yellow on the inside. Mm-hmm. What in the world is that? You know? <laughs> well, the the name is very appropriate. It's called a slime mold, and okay. it it's not really dangerous to your plants, but its next step, it will turn into kind of a hard, crusty layer that uh, water just doesn't penetrate very well. I'd take a little okay. trowel. I'd take a little bucket. I would just kind of scrape yeah. off as much of it as you can and take it and, okay. you know, dump it out somewhere else in the yard. But, yeah, it's it's the, you know, botanically we call them the myxomycetes. It's a group of fungi, which are most commonly called slime molds, and uh, uh, they're just a sign that you have a lot of organic material in the soil. They're not unusual, and, you know, out in nature, they're just, they're harmless, but uh, in this small area, they will harden. They will make it harder to properly water, so I just scrape a little bit of it off and dump it out somewhere else and go on with your gardening. If you have just a, a little, I mean, half a handful of sulfur, just kind 
to dust it on the top of that after you get it out, and that'll keep it from coming back. You never overdo sulfur okay. when we're hot because it creates sulfur dioxide, which can burn plants. But yes. uh, you're you're looking. I'm surprised you've never seen it before, as you say, having gardened for yeah. 40 years. But uh, yeah. it's not unusual, and it's not the kiss of death, and it's not really anything all that harmful. So you've got five minutes okay, worth of work good. to clean it up, and then you're done. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good, because it's overtaken one of my marigolds, and it's heading toward my uh, one of my tomato plants that's got some blooms on it now. And yep. I thought, oh, dear God. Anyway, I've never seen it before, but thank you so much. That's a quick fix. Okay, uh, well, one, one other thing. question. Okay, one other thing about what you've already, let me tell you something about what you've already told me, and that is don't plant any more marigolds out there. I know up north they talk about planting marigolds as supposedly repellent for nematodes, but in our part of the world, marigolds bring in 10,000 spider mites for every one nematode they repel. And if you're spraying your tomatoes very regularly with liquid seaweed, you will ward off the spider mite problem. But many people bring big troubles into the garden by planting marigolds. So spray tomatoes, spray... Actually, I've I've never planted them before. Well, and and they're pretty, but, you know, and uh, what you do for, if you want to grow marigolds, whether or not you have tomatoes or not, in this area, like every two weeks, you spray them with a mixture of liquid seaweed and water, about two tablespoons of liquid seaweed to a gallon of water, and it will... It will toughen the leaves of your plants to where the spider mites will not be a problem. But if we're going to okay. grow some good tomatoes and have pretty marigolds, if you don't have liquid yeah. seaweed, get some and be spraying it every two weeks. I do. I do have some. I'm holding it in my hand right now. It says liquid fish and seaweed plus. Just uh, don't four, doesn't two, do any three. good in the bottle. You need to mix it up and spray on the plants. Yeah, I know. I know. And I was getting ready to do that when good. this came up. And well. so... But I have one more question. Go right ahead. Uh, not about that. Uh, hostas. Uh-huh. Do they not do well in this part of the country? Well, they don't grow like they do in the Northeast. They don't do like they do in yeah. England or in Oregon. Um, if you've never yeah. seen them growing in an ideal situation, you would think that they were pretty plants. But here... You know, yeah. they struggle along. They grow in the shade. Snails and slugs yeah. absolutely love to eat them. They are so unusual that, you know, we're all tempted to plant a few every now and then. But uh, they they struggle in our area. You want to grow them in an area yeah. that has good soil, total shade, and frequent watering if yeah. you want to do well with them. And they're only a handful. There's one called Albo marginata, which has white edges on the leaves. There's one called the uh-huh. Oreo marginata, which has some yellow in the leaves. The big, fancy, blue-leaved forms and those, don't even mess with those. But if you want hostas, some of the basic ones will do okay in that shady yard. Okay, well, I was told by the son of a friend of mine who used to do some landscaping, and he's not organic, so I don't talk to him real often about this kind of stuff. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Kind of like sex, religion, and politics. You don't bring it up with friends. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. but uh, he said that they didn't do well here because they need cool nights. And oh, that so, didn't. Uh, 
No. They okay. they need they need rich soil. They need which we don't have. They need uh, yeah. real shady spots which we don't always have. Yeah. And they want cooler weather in general. It's uh, I'd have to say our Just our high daytime temperatures have much more impact uh, than just you know having cool nights uh, would do. Okay. So well, I've uh, always liked them a lot. Uh, uh-huh. Just pictures and things I've seen of them, obviously, growing up in the Northeast and everything. And then I saw some at uh, a nursery nearby. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I thought, because I have so much shade in one of uh, a flower bed that I've got, uh, it's all things that grow well in shade. And sure. I thought, well, I'm going to try those. And well, they haven't done well at all. I yeah. just have a couple of them, and they haven't done well at all. Fertilize fertilized frequently. A good yeah, fertilize frequently. Get them at a good nursery. I got yeah. them at one of the big home improvement stores. So <laughs> I just want to say I agree with you totally about not buying plants at one of their home, big home improvement stores. Oh, I and I could do that again. I can tell you, and I'll very quickly tell you the other thing that I think is downright dishonest. If you are a grower, if I take a hundred trees to one of these box stores, they sell fifty of them. And of the 50, and they kill the other 50, and of the 50 they sell, 25 people bring the trees back to them. Me as a grower, I get paid only for 25 trees. So the grower yeah. who sells to those places is called pay by scan. And, uh, it, the grower who grows for those places has only one incentive, and that's to grow things cheaply because he's only going to get paid for a small portion of what he sells. So uh, anyway, I can tell you lots yeah. of reasons to do business with the good nursery, but in the meantime, yeah. stick to Albo Marginata. Next spring, find yourself some Albo Marginata hostas, plant those, and they'll do moderately well for you. And, uh, with the money okay. you've saved, you can take a trip to Philadelphia and go to some beautiful botanical gardens and see them growing the way they want oh. to grow <laughs> oh i really love them <laughs> yeah okay. they are gorgeous well, thank you, bob so much it was so very nice to talk with you again Have don't a wait so day. long <laughs> thank you all right we're getting close to news time so sandra let's get started if we need to hold you through the news break we'll continue the conversation good morning good morning uh sam sitterly of course can help out with that grass problem the lady called about absolutely and then and then your testimony about David Vaughn, you know, we've used him for, I don't know, 12, 15 years. Uh, I planted a bunch of trees on a on a lot that had nothing but cedar. Uh-huh. And he, of course, had us build these tree wells with stones or bricks around them to hold the water so you could deeply water them. Right, right. It also prevents the soil from filling in. And then uh-huh. um, I've got a couple of examples and non-examples of how well it works. Uh, and you know I come to your your place all the time. Oh, of course. <laughs> uh, but but when I was desperate, H E B had some live oaks on sale, and so uh, my neighbor and my husband went and picked up a couple who that were about I don't know probably four feet tall. They well, rescued I a couple. Said, yes, I did. I rescued. <laughs> well, I rescued one. Mine is an example. So yeah. mine is now about thirty feet tall, about ten inch diameter. My neighbor who got the, you know, the same tree but didn't do what I did with it is only about 10 feet tall and about one inch diameter. I mean, mm-hmm. it makes such, such a huge difference. 
Well, I remember Alton Grimm told me one time about getting a bundle of tin pecan trees, planting four of them in his mother's yard in San Antonio where they got regular care, planting the other six on his uh, farm up there between Welfare and Waring, and going back, you know, 12, 15 years later, the ones in his mom's yard were 15 inches in diameter, the ones, and even though they got care, it wasn't the same care, and they were like five inches in diameter. Sandra, I'm going to get Chris to put you on hold because we're right up to news. We'll come back in just a moment. Oh, but don't dial right this second because uh, all the lines are taken. And I'll give you a hint. I have uh, people talk to me very frequently and say, I just can't get through. Remember, when you hear me finish one phone call, that actually happened about eight or nine seconds before because we were mandated by the FCC to have a short time delay. So the secret to getting through is anticipating by 10 seconds or so when I'm going to end one phone call. And there's going to be that brief period where nobody's on that line. Uh, Let's go back and visit with Sandra a little bit more. Good morning again, Sandra. Good morning, Bob. Most calls are about growing. I'm talking about killing a couple of types of plants. Okay. The first one is mint. So I have mint in a uh, uh, a bed, a raised bed, uh, gets midday sun. I just put in about two inches of compost, and I guess that really encouraged it because it is completely <laughs> invaded. <laughs> what have, else uh, is in the bed? Well, I have a red buckeye that I need to move in the fall. Uh-huh. I have uh, iris, salvia, um uh, giant liriope. You know, I've got some things in there I can probably move, which I'm thinking I might need to because it's, you know, it's just I pulled out probably a wheelbarrow full. And, of yep. course, those roots are, are deep. Well, they're not so deep, but they're they're very tough. Yeah. Long. Yeah. You know, the, about the best thing I can tell you is that all the plants that you mentioned will tolerate drying out a bit. And uh, if your mint is growing that vigorously, I think you're probably watering more often than you need to. Um, there is nothing that will will kill the mint without doing harm to the other plants. But you can sure weaken it by letting those things go a couple of weeks between water. That will not really hurt uh, the ripe or, you know, other things that you mentioned, the iris. Uh, I've got iris that if they get watered once a month, they're happy. But the mint's going to really start suffering if you start keeping a little bit drier, and it will make it a lot easier to control it if not eliminate it. Well, I thought about removing all the plants and solarizing it. That's just an awful extreme thing to have to do, and that would certainly work. But um, I, I, you know, you're just such a good gardener. You want everything to be absolutely perfect. But I think you can cut way back on your watering and still have your other plants do just fine, and the mint will start to suffer from lack of water. I I see that in my own yard when uh, times get real busy or when I take my fly rod and sneak out of town for a few days and uh, my mint patch really starts suffering if it goes for 10 days or two weeks without water and uh, the other plants around it don't even notice. So I, that's, that's how I would approach it because you're never going to dig it all out. Is there anything you can put on the leaves that, like a systemic? It's not systemic. Um, there are things, the orange oil and vinegar will kill the foliage, but it yeah. doesn't, uh, there's nothing safe that will go down and kill the root system as well. And uh, let me tell you, even the nasty stuff that you and I don't like will not kill mint. Okay. Now, All your right. heavy mulch will help, and, you know, you could... 
you can put down a little bit. You just have to cut and put in strips of weed block or something like that, uh, or even cardboard. You know, if you can uh, get creative uh, and just, in effect, cut some big chunks of cardboard that will go around your plants you want to save but cover up that mint, um, you'll really knock it back that way as well without using anything toxic. Okay. All right, so the next question is about Mexican hat uh, that I've called you about before. I have about a 1,000 square feet uh, of it along the driveway. The neighbors call me the wildflower lady because I've uh-huh. got a whole backyard full of it as well as that whole 1,000 square feet up front. Um, and so, it, it, you know, it's very invasive. I want to get rid of it. The antelope horns uh, that grow in there now have either ripened seed pods or some of them have, have opened. So I was thinking about mowing it and solarizing it. Should I till it before I solarize it? No, you'll just break it up to where it'll come up more than ever. And solarizing is going to be going to be a little tough because when you mow it down, every one of those blasted little stems is just like a little ice pick sticking up, and um, it's going to be hard to keep your plastic intact that you're going to solarize with because you know the wind comes it flaps up and down just a little bit and um, uh, all of a sudden you've got a thousand little pinholes in there and yeah the the Mexican hat rabidita it's a botanical name it's tough it's tough to get rid of but it is kind of like Johnson grass if you will mow it off repeatedly and not let it come back out to any size, it will die out. And uh, 1,000 square feet is a pretty big area. Of course, I've got 100 acres of it that I'd love to do the same thing to. But uh, regular shredding it down uh, is going to, unfortunately, I think is going to be a better plan, even if it means weekly mowings. Because um, if you're going to try to solarize it, you'd almost have to put down some weed block fabric and then put plastic on top of that. Otherwise, those little short stems are going to, you know, they're going to put a thousand pinholes in your plastic. Yes, they also have roots that are about a foot deep, like they look Mm -hmm. like a carrot. Yep. A taproot. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I love it when we get three inches of rain because right around my gate and places that I get out and walk and want to be able to see where I put my feet, I, you pull them up when the soil's wet, yeah. but you'll you'll pull your back before you pull them out when the soil's dry. Yes, I know. I've been pulling them up since it's been wet. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you can, and old Alton Grimm taught me this many years ago, talking about Johnson grass, he told me it has to make a big top to survive. And if you will, for even a couple of months, just be very religious about keeping it cut down close to ground level, it will die out. Uh, it works with Johnson grass, and it'll work with Mexican hat, too. Thank you, Bob. That's all we got. <laughs> well, Sandra, you keep up your good work up at Texas State and all the people you help, and uh, we'll look forward to visiting again. And, Chris, we'll move along to Ruth. Uh, good morning, Ruth. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have a red oak. It's a, not a Texas red oak. It's a Shamard, I think. Okay. I don't know if I'm saying that right. And it has what I think is called lichen. Is that what it is? Lichen is a little symbiotic plant relationship that grows on the bark. They're totally harmless. Well, evidently, it is killing the tree. I have quite a few dead limbs, and some of these dead limbs are just solid ants on them. 
Okay. Well, it's not the lichen. It's it's not the lichen that's killing them. The lichen uh-huh. is. I mean, it grows on a rock just as fast as it will grow on a tree. Where? What area do do you live in, Ruth? I live uh, between Lavernia and Southern Springs. Okay, well, the Schumard's not a bad oak over there. Schumard's a, a lousy oak for, uh, you know, the western hill country. But over there, Schumard is not a bad tree. Uh, things that I always suspect, red oaks, of course, are not nearly as tough and durable as a live oak. But, um, of course, I always check the root flare to be sure that that's exposed. They do not like excessive moisture and... Um, you know, it's, it's, they're kind of the wimps. They're not as bad as post oak and some of the others, but they don't like being too wet. They don't like being too dry. And dead limbs are sort of the order of business. I've got, oh God, I can't tell you how many of the red oaks that, uh, I have on my property. And for every one limb that I have die and fall out of a live oak, I'll have 20 or 30 limbs come out of a red oak. So, uh, and, and the lichens, the lichens and, and as well as some of the bromeliads that grow, they grow on dead wood just as fast as they do on live wood. And, and they're totally harmless. I mean, they, they take nothing from the tree. All they're doing is using it as a place to attach themselves and grow. So they are a consequence of probably having the tree thin out a little bit but they're they're you'd still have the problem if you got rid of every lichen out there okay would it help to put some of that um stuff from uh garrett garrett juice um not the garrett juice but the sick tree treatment Yes, absolutely. That's what I was going to tell you. Uh, next thing I would suggest is go to dirtdoctor.com and follow what he calls the sick tree treatment. And exposing the root flare is going to be the single most important thing. And when it comes to watering, remember that a tree like a Schumard red oak wants to be really watered thoroughly when it's watered, but then it wants to get pretty darn dry between waterings. Uh, uh, an established tree, you're only going to have to water it if we, you know, go for more than six or eight weeks without any rainfall. And uh, they, they'd a whole lot rather be a little too dry than they would to be too wet. Now, first year or so they're in the ground, yeah, we've got to water a little bit more regularly. But I want you to, first of all, check that root flare, uh, then, you know, watch your watering. And I think I think your tree is going to, the, the live limbs will start outnumbering the dead limbs because, uh, um, uh, you know, th- this is a physical problem of some sort. Okay. It doesn't get a whole lot of water where it's at. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I'll check the root flare on it, and I just wondered if we needed to cut it down or <laughs> well, a tree, a sick tree treatment. You know, the sick tree treatment would very definitely be a worthwhile thing. Red oaks are wonderful because, you know, nice fall color and they grow quickly. But unfortunately, they're not real long-lived and they are prone frequently to having dead dead limbs in there. I think there are better choices. I would far sooner see you plant a burr oak or even a Lacey's oak or a Monterey oak. Uh, red oaks, and, and plus the fact that they are susceptible to oak wilt, and when they get oak wilt, they totally die in two weeks, and they can spread the disease, unlike live oaks, uh, as far as forming spore mats and things. So it's it's not a tree I would plant any more of, but since you have it there, let's try to get it good and healthy, and when you plant some other trees, we'll talk first, and I'll give you some better suggestions. 
Okay, yeah, this has been in the ground probably about 15 years. Yeah, so yeah, I, I'll bet you that root flare is covered up. I'll bet you that you'll. Maybe. And, and if you if you get it exposed, the tree starts getting healthier the next day, literally. Oh wow! Okay, I'll check that out right away. You okay, let me know what you find, Ruth. I sure will. I have one other question. Okay, it's a plant called G A U R A. Can you tell me Gara. about it? Uh, Gara. Common name is. Yeah, Gar- Gara Lindheimeri is its botanical name. It is uh, its common name is Lindheimer's butterflies because the old German naturalist a hundred years ago identified and named that plant. It is a native wildflower, but uh, a couple of Japanese seed companies have taken the native Gara and hybridized it to where these days we have several varieties of it that are more intensely colored and more vigorous growing. Uh, there's a green leaf form, there's a pink leaf form, or it's more of like almost a maroon colored leaf to it, and you will find uh, white flowering ones, you will find pink flowering ones. They are very good plants for a sunny area. They will bloom off and on through most of the summer. They're They're not invasive. They don't grow invasively but they grow extremely well they're not a really neat manicured type of plant but boy for something that just makes a just you know a a swarm of little flowers the butterflies love them the hummingbirds love them uh like i say full sun is mandatory if you're going to grow gara well but and uh, i w- i would look for the improved forms one of them's called shishki s i s h k or s i s k i shishki pink and shishki white uh and uh, again you're going to find several varieties some with green leaves some with more highly colored leaves but they're all easy to grow and all i think very worthwhile do they need to be uh trimmed like shrub i mean do you only keep them only if they get like that only if they get bigger than you like they'll look a little oh. prettier if you deadhead them but they'll be pretty if you never touch them with pruning shears they'll still be pretty okay fine well thank you so much hey, it's my pleasure Blair on my on my tree and you let me know what you find, Ruth. Thank I you sure so much. Thank you. Thank you. Certainly. Oh, man, I can't believe the morning flies by so quickly. We've been doing this for almost two and a half hours already, and it's almost time for Dr. Kirby. But we still should have time to talk to Claude and Leslie and Hope and Trent. And Claude is up next. Good morning, sir. Morning. Morning. Uh, what I would like to discuss, and it seems to be the uh, topic here for the last 30 or 45 <laughs> minutes, is oak trees. Yes, sir. I own two properties here in Pleasanton. One is my home. The other is my wife's office. Okay. Between them, we have 17 oak trees. Very good. Sixteen of these trees are native. One of them is a tree that my wife purchased at a charity auction, and it was marketed as a hybrid oak. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever heard of anything like that? Well, you know, technically every tree that grows from a seed is a hybrid. Uh, it would be a much more honest description for these uh, companies to refer to them as select 
Live Oaks um, because, oh, there used to be a place down in Premont called Storm Nursery, and they had a special name for their, quote, hybrid live oak. And just everybody wants to name their tree to make you think you can't buy it from anyone except them. But I always tell people a native live oak is one you dig up in the country. A hybrid live oak is the one you buy at the nursery. So um, I don't think one is better than the other. I think the, quote, hybrid live oak that is spent and it's you know it's life under good nursery care is frequently a more vigorous plant when it starts out but long term 100 years from now you won't be able to tell the difference in the two of them okay well our my uh question today is would uh, the other 16 trees that we have are we know are native because some of them the trunks are as much as uh, five or six feet in diameter yes sir all of them are infected with uh, oak wilt. Oh, really? So I noticed the ones at my wife's office back in January, and I started applying uh, stone ground uh, yellow cornmeal to them. Uh Uh-huh. And one of them was amazing. I wished I had photographed all of them because one (laughs) of them in January had zero leaves. Now it's probably 45 to 50% leafed out. Yes, sir. And I thought it was dead. Uh-huh. The others uh, have not recovered so fast. My question is, how often do I need to apply this uh, cornmeal? So far, I've put out a little over 100 pounds of it on the uh, 16 trees that well, are that's Yeah, I probably would have used three times that much cornmeal. But... Here's here's the thing. Of course, it's not the cornmeal that's the magic. It's this uh, beneficial fungus called trichoderma, which right. grows on the cornmeal, which stimulates in these trees what is sometimes called systemic induced resistance. Sometimes it's called systemic acquired resistance, and it literally will keep the trees from getting live oak, or it will help them recover. Uh, you know, there there becomes a point that, uh, you know, like like some like a patient in a hospital, sometimes you're just too far gone to be saved. But and it's the same way with trees. But uh, trees can be pretty far, pretty badly damaged and still recover. And what I normally tell people is, if you just want to do something as a sort of preventive, no immediate threat, do it once a year. If you've got oak wilt next door. Do the preventive twice a year. If your trees actually have the oak wilt disease, uh, Ceratostasis fragoraceum or whatever it is, um, you know, uh, do this like four times a year because what you're trying to do, the way the disease kills the trees is it plugs up the vessels that take water from the roots of the tree to the top of the tree. And that's why the tree starts thinning out, why parts of the tree start dying, and eventually the whole tree dies. And so we've just got to get this systemic resistance going to where the trees can recover. And one thing that that has been discovered, and they're doing more research on it in Europe than they are in this country, because I think they love to sell that $1,000 a tree treatment called propicanazole, but uh, they have found that you can use much less cornmeal if you will actually put it on in a liquid form, which means taking five-gallon buckets to five gallons of water, put a couple of cups of cornmeal, let it soak overnight, and then 
pour the liquid, usually up to within about 10 feet of the trunk. We're finding that that is where the tree takes up the majority of its moisture. It takes up nutrients and things out by the drip line. But around these individual trees, and this can just almost be a daily or a weekly routine, trees that big, you're going to do five or six buckets of liquid. But uh, take your buckets of water, a couple of cups of cornmeal in each bucket, soak it overnight, and then just pour it out over the root zone uh, or over the the root area, but within about 10 feet of the trunk. And it will do just as much good as putting out hundreds of pounds out around the drip line. But actively infected trees, I'd be doing it about four times a year. And most of your trees will recover. Yeah, they didn't get sick overnight. They don't recover overnight. But live oaks can, and most of them will recover with that treatment. Now, red oaks are a different story. Red oak gets oak wilt. It's usually dead in two weeks. You don't really have time to respond. But uh, these trees are certainly worth saving. And uh, you can use the dry cornmeal. I mean, that's what I recommended for years before we learned that the liquid was just as effective and you didn't have to cover as big an area and you didn't have to use up nearly as much cornmeal. So uh, you work uh, or you do whatever works for Claude. Well, and and I have, I, I bought 15 five-gallon buckets. <laughs> Very good. And so that's how I've been applying it uh, was in the liquid form. Okay, well, that's good. But but get up closer to the trunk. You don't need to be doing all that much that far out. And uh, I'm sure you've probably got a good bakery there in Pleasanton. You'll find that, you know, bakeries bring in a lot of the things, a lot of the ingredients they use in five-gallon buckets. And many times those buckets are free of charge from the bakery, whereas you pay several dollars at the feed store for them. Okay, yeah. Well, that's... I guess the 15 probably worked for me. I just yeah. need to start putting out more of it, uh, and I'll continue uh, then on a uh, quarterly basis every three yes, sir. months uh, soaking all of them. Well, and take some pictures. I think you're wise. I have on my phone, I have pictures of two of these majestic live oaks uh, in the property of uh, a man that I buy hay from for my cattle. And his trees were probably 80% defoliated. And today, at least from a distance, you'd never know they ever had oak wilt. And, uh, you know, they're getting rapidly to the point that even real close inspection, you wouldn't see much in the way of dead limbs anymore. So you're off to a good start, but uh, the battle's not over yet. Okay, and I did start taking pictures, uh, not with my cell phone, but with my uh, uh, digital camera. Uh, you're and, you're a dinosaur uh, like me. <laughs> <laughs> I just wished I had done it back in January when I noticed the, I had the disease. And yep. so I could uh, put a, uh, a display out uh, showing the difference with the uh, cornmeal. Well, it's kind of like people ask me when the best time to plant a tree is, and I tell them 10 years ago, but the second best time is today. So that's kind of what you're doing with your photography. So you keep up the good work, and let me know how it all works out for you. Okay, very good. I appreciate it. You have a good day. Hey, you do the same, Claude. It's my pleasure. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. And uh, Leslie is up next. Uh, good morning, Leslie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, I just have a couple of, I don't know, questions and maybe one comment. I had just, um, this past week, I took a, quite a few cuttings, um, you know, softwood cuttings or whatever. Um, okay. 
is this an okay time to do that? Because I, I figured, you know, if they if they strike, then, you know, I could plant them out in the fall and so they can get their roots and... Tell, tell, me what kind of, tell me what kind of plants you're trying to propagate. Well, I did uh, Flomus, the yellow kind. Uh-huh. I did yep. um, a white Mexican bush sage. I did uh, a fuzzy red Bolivian sage. I did um, a couple of agastaches. Okay. And I well, here's yeah. Here's here's the general rule, uh, Leslie. Is that plants that always have a soft stem, and I'm talking about things like begonias, coleus, impatiens, uh, many of your salvias that are that freeze down in the winter months. Uh, it is a fine time to take cuttings and. You know, as long as you're rooting them in perlite or something rather than water, uh, you can certainly do it very successfully at this time of the year. If a plant has a woodier stem, like a bush sage or a rose or pavonia or something like that, you need to let the stem mature. You need to let it get a little hard, a little bit woody and you'll have a much higher percentage of cuttings root. Uh, in other words, if you were to take uh, very soft wood cuttings on roses, you probably have two out of ten wood strike roots. If you let them uh, harden off a bit, if you let them form a little bit woodier tissue, then ten out of ten you would have success rooting. So I, I think you're probably going to have to just keep some records and learn for yourself which ones that real soft cutting will root and which ones won't. But my general rule, if it's a plant that forms a woodier stem, then I'm going to let the wood mature before I take cuttings. If it's a plant that uh, always has a softer stem, then you can uh, then you can take cuttings on it almost any time. Okay, so that's a... That sounds like a good general rule. Yes, sir. And, and the other thing, too, if it's a plant that has a really uh, soft stem, do not waste your time with rooting hormones, rooting powders, things like that. I think they actually slow down rooting. On woodier stems, if you want to use one of the rooting hormone products, you can. I find just across the board, soaking your cuttings for 15 minutes or so in liquid seaweed or maybe a very dilute garret juice, I find that that increases the rooting uh, better than any of the more expensive powders ever do. Yeah, I don't, I don't mess with that rooting hormone stuff. Good. Um, Very good. <laughs> yeah, one um, comment. So the lady that was asking about hostas earlier, you know, uh -huh. I, have, I have just a few, but I have them in pots, uh -huh. and, and they seem to do all right if I keep them, as you say, in the shade, you know, um, and they make, you know, depending on the size of the pot, they make a pretty, pretty sizable plant. I mean, it's not going to get, you know, four, <laughs> five, 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 you know, yeah. some in substance like they do, you know, up north, right. but, right. you know, pretty, you know, and you can have a nice little group or something like that, but I just, I just keep them in pots and I spray them with garlic, you know, for, uh -huh. uh, you know, just, on the off chance that any snail gets up there, you know, sure. it kind of sure. 
repellent or whatever. So well, I agree with you a hundred percent. I just I've had the pleasure over the years of seeing them grow in places where they absolutely thrive, and uh, mm-hmm. and and you're just you're never going to achieve uh, the climate of England or Pennsylvania or Oregon in South Texas, but they are so beautiful <laughs> and they give you the you know the benefit of the little lavender or in some cases white flowers so uh i i think they are very worthwhile growing but um just just don't let your expectations exceed reality <laughs> it would probably yeah, be the kindest way to put it yeah i don't myself to believe they're going to be anything like that that's the truth I, yeah i i just feel sorry for people that get these uh these magazines in the mail with these gorgeous pictures <laughs> and the and that imply that you can you too can do this but uh uh it's it they it's just not going to happen but you're exactly right i think they're if you like them they're worth growing and uh growing them in containers is fine it's you have to watch your watering a little bit more but you certainly have more control over the soil and the location when you do it in containers so you keep up the good work yeah and um you know I, there's a heck of a lot of uh, gardening shows from near and far on youtube and <laughs> i think if you i think if you um lose yourself you can think they're talking to you you know <laughs> uh, yeah you you have a very realistic and refreshing outlook i'll put it that way <laughs> all right bob well you have a great sunday you do the same, Leslie. It's good to talk to you. Thank you. Okay. Um, let's go ahead and talk to Hope. Good morning, Hope. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you today? I'm doing really good. Hey, Very I'll good. Make quick I know you're running out of time. Oh, we've um, got time. Don't rush. Okay. Um, we have a couple of really nice aloe vera plants. Never knew they could get as big as they do. Uh-huh. And didn't know that they could bloom a beautiful bloom that they're they're blooming right now, and, and make the um, hummingbirds very happy coming down to those blooms. Yes, ma'am. Wow, I haven't seen that yet, but I hopefully we will. We're not yes. around enough probably to see them. Maybe they're out there and we just don't ever see them. Right. Um, but on those blooms, so we had three come up um, in the first round, and now those three are dead, and now we have two new ones. Will it hurt to cut those old ones that are dead off of there? Not at all. Not at all. It's, uh, um, it's just cutting the old bloom spikes off is just like cutting your hair or your fingernails. Once they are finished, uh, you might as well cut them off. It just makes the plants look a little nicer. It doesn't, the plant doesn't know the difference though. It, it doesn't care whether you do or not, but, uh, they're certainly more attractive if you cut the old blooms away. Sure. And we just cut it all the way down to the bottom. Just as far down as you can cut it without damaging the leaves. Okay. And then on the leaves, um, if there's some brown tips or some other brown spots on the aloe vera plant, can you trim those or no? You can. Um, you know, it, it. they're not going to heal, so to speak. And where you cut them, they will seal over, but they're always going to have a little bit of brown to them. But uh, aloe vera is never going to win a beauty contest. And, and some of those little dry tips on the leaves are just what you have to expect. Now, one thing I will tell you in case you are not aware of it is that the bigger the leaves get, the more medicinal quality that they have. And if you're wanting 
using your aloe vera as you know as a you know skin lotion so to speak or it's absolutely wonderful for healing sunburn and minor abrasions right. and things like that they say the leaves don't reach their full medicinal potential until they weigh two pounds each so having a nice big plant for that purpose is far far better than dividing it up into lots and lots of little plants let it grow big like that and then hopefully you're not going to need the uh not going to need that slimy juice out of it very often but for a burn for abrasions for poison ivy uh it's just almost miraculous how well it works so well uh, you're doing a good thing okay well the other reason too is because i got two little dogs that keeps jumping on one of them and they keep breaking the stems <laughs> off and that's why I wanted to trim the other one up because it's got broken stems on it. Will that will that kill it? No, that's just cosmetic. So uh, you trim any way you like. And uh, I tell you, my aloe veras, my stapelias, things like that, I take a, a second pot and turn it upside down, you know, with a broad base so it's not going to get knocked over. But uh, I have two black labs, and those tails are deadly. And oh, yeah. uh, I... I get the plants raised up off the ground a little bit, and I have much less canine damage that way. Oh, okay. Well, ours are in rock gardens, so um, the one ah, is okay. really driving out there, but that one just keeps getting jumped on. So, Sure. <laughs> um, well, the other question I have, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, be aware, we haven't had a cold winter in a long time, but aloe vera is not especially cold-hardy. Some of the other aloes, uh, the tiger aloe, some of the others will take a lot of cold. But if we're going to have temperatures down in the 20s, you're probably going to want to cover aloe vera because it's about the least cold-hardy of all the aloes. Okay, great. My husband probably already knew that, but I'll let him know. <laughs> okay. Um, the next question I have is we have a couple of uh, pygmy palms. Each one of them have the three, it's a triple. Uh-huh. And I wanted to know, on one of them, we lost one of the, I don't know what you would call it, the... The trunks. The trunk, yeah. So yeah. do we leave that, or is it safer to cut that off or get rid of it? Makes no difference whatsoever. Uh, once again, it's kind of like cutting off a dead bloom stem. The plant will look nicer if you do that. But uh, Phoenix Robolini, which is your pygmy date palm, you're fortunate that it is one of the palms that does branch from the base. Something like a windmill palm or a sayball palm, uh, it, it doesn't work. You lose the main trunk and the whole plant's dead. Same thing's true with your Cocos plumosa, the, what do they call that one, the queen palm. But uh, with Phoenix Robolini, it can and will put out more trunks from the base. So Anything that's unattractive or dies out like that. And, and realize that on the individual trunk, the only part that's alive is right up at the top of the trunk where the new leaves come out. If that okay. little section gets damaged, you might as well take out the whole trunk because it doesn't branch the way out, the way many, you know, plants do. It only makes new trunks from down at the very base. So you trim however you need to to keep it attractive. Oh, okay. All right. I didn't know keeping it on there would help um, or would, um, would kill the other or not uh, no, let it no, go. It doesn't make any difference at all. Okay. Your, your phone's cutting out on you there, Hope. I think we've lost our connection there, Chris. Uh, all right. I guess we'll probably finish up the phone calls with Trent and then uh, a few other things I can tell you if we wind up with any extra time. But uh, let's bring up Trent first and see how I can help there. Good morning, Trent. 
I guess I'm the the nine hole hitter in the lineup today. I guess I'm the last. Guy, huh? <laughs> you're you're the cleanup batter, so to speak. But that's many people would tell you that's the most important position out there. So uh, um, yes, sir. You know, bases are loaded. It's the bottom of the ninth, and the score is tied. So what what can we do to help you knock it out of the park? <laughs> All right, uh, I've got a, a a section on. I've got about a almost a three acre lot, and I've got a lot next to me that's that's it's empty, but I. Somebody may end up purchasing it, so I kind of want to put something, a little barrier there on my back okay. part. Okay. Uh-huh. And I was trying to find out what is something that would be good to plant tree-wise. It's probably about 150 foot of line. Okay. Uh, what could I put? start putting on this to kind of get that barrier going? And whereabouts do you live? I live in Stephenville, which is... Okay. Weatherford, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's a little different than uh, than Pleasanton and some of the other places we talk <laughs> about. So, are you looking for how tall would you like this barrier to be? In other words, do you uh, do you want a a medium sized evergreen tree? Do you want basically a privacy hedge that grows twelve fifteen feet tall? What uh, what is your ultimate yeah. desire to have here? I, 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 I guess that would be kind of what I would like is you know something that's going to grow in that at least a twelve to fifteen foot tall type thing. Okay, and so we're and we're looking at probably a length you say maybe one hundred and fifty feet. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, I think if if I were in your situation, and you do have a nice sized lot yourself, so we're not confined to just a very thin row along the back. And to me, it's not. Is sometimes it's necessary, but it's not attractive just to you know put a long hedge of the same boring thing out there for the whole distance. So what I'm going to do is kind of create a. Oh, a, a little kind of a mini forest along that fence line, and I'm going to use several different things in there just to give it a little bit of variety. Is this an area that's easy for you to water, or is this an area that pretty much is going to have to get by for its on its own uh, once it gets established? Uh, most of it I can get water to it. Okay. Well, things that I would can go ahead. It's it's just oh, and you. It's a, it's a place that used to be all hay meadow, so it's uh-huh. just a lot of you know other coastals and grasses, and the soil is really, really sandy loamy, so it's not bad. Okay, and hopefully there hasn't been a lot of P plus D or Grazon or Pickleram sprayed out there over the years. No, I, I don't think there was. Okay, that's good because that stuff just doesn't go away, and it can be a menace to get things to grow for years, years afterwards. But um, right. I, plants that I would consider um, uh, your standard Yopon Holly, if you want to buy the best improved one out there, is called Pride of Houston. And uh, it loves your growing conditions in Stephenville. Give you beautiful red berries, you know, and evergreen foliage, and just the you know total resistance to most problems. Um, okay. You can actually grow a decent mountain laurel out there, and you might mix a few mountain laurels in there. Uh, these two are both not the fastest growing things, so you're very very wise to do this now before you're trying to just do something overnight. Um, there is a plant called Southern Wax Myrtle that you might want to mix in there. You might want to plant some of the so-called purple sage, the Sinisa. Some of the newer varieties are like Desperado and Eldorado and uh, Lowry's Legacy. 
There's some that are a lot prettier than just the old native sage that you see growing around there. But some of these things could be attractively mixed in. They're going to grow six, eight feet tall. And every time you get a rain, you're going to get a wonderful, you know, array of flowers out there. I probably would work in a couple of crepe myrtles. Uh, crepe myrtles are going to lose all their leaves in the winter. So they're not going to give you a lot of uh, privacy during those few months that they're deciduous, but mixed in with some of these, and I think everything else I've mentioned to you is evergreen, uh, mixed in with your evergreen plants, um, it's just going to be, you know, very colorful. And, I, I, you know, I, I just want to make it look kind of like a sort of an intensely cultivated area of natives and not just one one long row of boring shrubs. But uh, that's those are the ones that come to mind immediately. I suspect okay. that you could do well with evergreen sumac or even flame sumac, which once again is going to lose its leaves in the winter, but very beautiful fall color. And then if you wanted to mix a couple of small trees in there, the Monterey oak is the live oak that is resistant to oak wilt uh, that could be a pretty tree to mix in desert willow is kind of a scraggly tree but it uh, you know it, it gives you beautiful color in the summer months and mixed in with other things is quite attractive okay okay 